You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. You are here this evening at Capitola Book Cafe. Tonight we have a book that is certainly worth your reading time and an author who is worth your listening time. Michael Lewis is a freelance writer, archaeologist. He's an environmentalist. He's the author of Ecritage and Descendants of Edmund Lewis of Lynn, Massachusetts. His new book is The Enviromeddlers. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Thank you, Rick. Nice to be on this side of the microphone again. <laughs> Michael, this is a fabulous book. Uh, you and I were talking earlier, and, and I think environmental thriller is the way to describe this. You uh, bring Edward Abbey up into the digital age where I think he would be very happy to be. I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I just, I, I really love the, the, that sensibility that runs through this whole work. Talk about, you're an environmentalist and you're obviously concerned about the earth. And it's one thing to blog about um, all the news we get, most of it bad, <laughs> about what's what humans are doing to the earth. It's another thing to turn that into an engaging work of fiction. Mm -hmm. So what made you make that decision in the first place? Well, that's exactly what it was. I'd, I'd been writing for since long before I can remember. Uh, I did a, a newsletter from Alaska when I lived up there that was distributed down in the lower 48. And I've been writing about my feelings about the environment and what I've observed going on. I've been a fan of Ed Abbey for many years. And I decided I wanted to get that out into a form that's more palatable so that it didn't sound like I was preaching to people. And so I thought, well, if I write an engaging thriller-type story, kind of an Abbey-esque type story, brought up to modern times with digital technology, that maybe we could kind of carry on what Abby has set before us and bring it into the modern times, and as well as a, a new message about environmentalism in today's world. I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of this book is uh, that you give us, I think, uh, a three-dimensional look at environmentalism, hmm. and whereas before, uh, back when Abby was writing, and for a long time, environmentalism has been sort of viewed in a one-dimensional manner, mm -hmm. experienced, and even to a degree rolled out. But now I think we're coming to understand it, that um, the consequences of trying to fix what we've broken can be maybe as serious as what broke them in the first place. And <laughs> I think that uh, the, uh, that um, aspect of this book is really fascinating. Oh, that's interesting. Um, the complexity of the environmental problems that we're facing now are, are just almost incomprehensible. And it, um, you're right, we can't fix the problems with the same technology that we use to create them. And so now environmentalism is moving into a new era, a new uh, way of looking at it, where we're beginning to grasp the, tech the um, complexity of the problems that are faced with it, and really looking at some of the social problems that have brought them about. It's not just about technology, it's about our whole social program that creates the technology that's causing all the problems. Um, Abby dealt a lot with the technology part of it. And that's what monkey wrenching is all about, is destroying the technology that's causing the problem. You don't hurt the people. Uh, you, just, you just destroy the technology. But one of the things that left many of us um, kind of in the lurch with that approach was that it wasn't dealing with the social system that was creating the technology that was causing the problem. And so that's where we're coming at now is more of a social approach. Well, it's interesting to, to think that we, all of us here, can think of 20 different words to describe coffee, but no single word to describe self-aware. Hmm. And, and I think that's one of the things that you, this book brings, you know, brings to light is, as you were saying, the social perspectives that inform the decisions we make that affect the, the world we live in. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've found in the 60s and 70s and on into the 80s, the, um, the establishment, they learned how to control information. 
And so when we do our protest, when we, do, when we see illegal logging going on or uh, pollution coming from a factory, we do our protest. And nowadays, it, it's almost a, a systematic thing. We, we do our protest, we're arrested, we're put on the bus, we're shipped off to the jail, processed through and turned loose. And that's it. And everybody has gotten what they wanted out of it. The environmentalists had their protest. They got arrested in front of the cameras. Uh, they got to go on and continue doing environmentalism. And the polluters are allowed to keep polluting. Nothing really happens. So uh, through the process of this book, it's a process of discovery that these older ways just really aren't working anymore. And we've got to come up with something else. There's a character who expresses that. He says, we have to come up with a new story. And I think that's the social basis of it. The story that we're being told, that we have been told now up to to this time is not working anymore. And it's the story of how to be a human being in this world. And so we need to find a new story now that tells us how to live in this world that's changing as we, we come along and, and uh, in the circumstances that we exist socially and politically. Well, I think that's one of the powerful aspects of this book is it speaks to the fact that humans are a narrative species. If I ask mm -hmm. you who you are, what are you going to do? You're going to tell me a story. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, by observing that the stories that we take into us um, help to uh, recreate us every day. And, you know, stories are, are themselves a kind of ecology and an environment that we live in. And that's one of the, the powers of this book is that it helps inform us that the stories that we create inform the way we interact with all of our environment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's particularly interesting. I've been working on this project for 10 years. <laughs> well, actually all my life, but uh, actively for 10 years. And during that 10-year time period, my story changed uh, through that time. And, that, and the change in my story is reflected in the change in the characters in the book. That They learned a lot of the things that I learned over that time period. They were very observant characters. They really learned well. Well, talk about creating the characters in this book. Um, in fact, why don't you uh, read us something from it? Uh, oh I'm always good with going with the beginning, but if there's a passage that you prefer, uh, let's hear that. Well, one of my favorites, let's see if I can, it's been a long time since I've looked through here. I have to find out where it is. Um, it's the dream story. Oh, yeah, that's, I really yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, we, you all know the story, uh, the, the, uh, image of the environmentalers uh, having a protest out in the, the middle of the forest and uh, uh, confronting the constabulary in the middle of the forest. Well, this, this one is just a, a little bit different. The scene turned out to be a tree sit in protest of an oncoming healthy forests initiative. Tree thinning operations, which despite its euphemistic name, wreaked havoc in the surrounding forest. Official black SUVs encountered a tall tripod suspending the bullhorn-equipped body of a nubile young female protester, scantily clad and making her presence known to all assembled, thoroughly and efficiently blocking the roadway. Cut the park service, not the trees, opined one. Save a tree for Jesus, suggested another. Down with logging, up yours, hazarded a third. Several budding journalists scurried about the mayhem, recording all on tape, hard drive, and computer chip. One lanky, bearded curmudgeon clasped in his claws an actual fountain pen and a pocket spiral notebook on the pages of which he scribbled cogent literary commentary. A black-clad thug raised a microphone to his mouth. A squeal split the ears of all within earshot. Electronic twiddling ensued, and the long arm of the law tried once again. The megaphone crackled to life. All right, came the overmodulated reply. I need a leader to talk to. Who's in charge of this demonstration? Anarchy rules, shouted one. We're all leaders, replied another. Down with rulers, a voice pop piped from the trees. Up with yardsticks, came a voice from a hole in the ground. <laughs> okay, you have two minutes to produce a spokesman. Decide among yourselves. His words were drowned out by laughter and shouts of spokesman. Spokesman dying away to a low guttural chant. Spokes, 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 spokes. The rhythm taken up first on a drum, followed by others beating on branches, pops, hubcaps, and metal pipes. Rustling activity in the brush behind the venerable sequoia drew the attention of the constabulary. TV cameras and electronic devices followed suit as three spokes emerged from the forest and made their way through the protesters in the direction of the black-clad megaphoners. Three spokes with long gray hair. Three women spokes with long gray hair. 
Three supremely naked and unself-conscious women spokes with long gray hair advanced on the assembled constabulary and representatives of the world press, their held, heads held high, their faces shining in the sun, their breasts swaying in stride. They stopped in front of the officers of the law and stood hands on hips, legs defiantly spread wide over 200 years of combined environmental experience and outrage. <laughs> Confusion washed over the crowd. <laughs> TV camera lenses pointed at anything but the three nude women. <laughs> Digital cameras hung forgotten below the gaping mouths of photographers. One lone fountain pen bounced off the leathery toe of the one lone print journalist. <laughs> We are the spokes for those who cannot speak. She read from a blank paper, we are here to speak for the trees, the wildflowers, the shrubs, the slugs, the beetle, the deer, the owl, the hawk. We will not allow you to destroy these lives for human gain. The forest and all life within it belongs to itself and you will trespass here no more. She rolled, raised the scroll in her arms, her tawny body shining proudly in the sun. Go away from this place and take your foul engines of destruction with you. She threw down the scroll at their feet and turned, gathered the other women in her arms, and they all walked proudly back behind the lines of protesters. <laughs> this, this, that chapter was inspired by the uh, activities in Seattle and the protest against the World Court. Um, and the, the image that I will forever carry from that event was the catapults they had there catapulting teddy bears over the barricades <laughs> into the, to the assembled multitude on the other side. And so this is the kind of thing that, that um, we use to approach the standard response from the authorities is that is to, we, we just make fun of the whole thing. We show the absurdity of the whole process. And we take it to a different level of expression. And, and it, it's amazing how well that works in terms of, of getting ideas across and, and uh, establishing some sanity in a really insane situation. Well, one of the things that I think is uh, so interesting about this story is the way that you use these kind of uh, surreal settings and the, the surreal response to real problems in order to, uh, I think, uh, scare away a lot of the, the veils of, uh, you know, obfuscation, the, the layers of bureaucracy that, that you know, uh, just suffocate uh, any kind of, like, real uh, dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction isn't battered down. It's, it's, it's mushed. Oh, yeah. Well, and this goes back to, uh, speaking as an anthropologist now, uh, the, the trickster in uh, Native American histories. In fact, every uh, indigenous people have a trickster figure, and that's what the trickster does. The trickster points out the absurdity of what people are trying to do in their lives, the facade that they carry around in their lives, cuts through that absurdity and, and, and gives everybody a common ground to be able to laugh at themselves and realize. And, and there's, there's nothing more absurd than the current situation in politics and the environment. It's just, it has, be, everything has become so politicized now that it's, you need something like that to cut through all that to get to the reality underneath. Now, uh, I'd like you to just talk a little bit about um, creating the characters and creating the plot, structuring the plot, because as you said, you writing this over 10 years, the situation on the ground changed, technology in <laughs> 10 minutes changes radically. Yeah. So uh, when you're creating a book, you need to kind of like reach for a point that's like the day after tomorrow mm -hmm. in a way that because by the time the book comes out, that will, day after tomorrow is going to be yesterday. Yeah, this is a perfect example. One of the characters in here is a um, computer hacker. And I wrote this um, eight years ago. When I wrote this, uh, no one knew who, what WikiLeaks was, and no one had ever heard of Julian Assange. And in the interim, interim time, the things that I was writing about came to pass in reality. And it, I couldn't write fast enough to keep ahead of reality. <laughs> it's just amazing. And uh, I'm still trying to do that now, but by the time, and that's one of the problems with, that's one of the reasons why I chose to go with self-publishing rather than standard publishing. Because if you write a book, you finish the manuscript, you go for an agent, the agent sells it to a publisher, the publisher takes it on as a project, you edit it for two years and it finally comes out. By the time you come out, it's history, not science fiction. 
It has changed the genre completely. And you can't write in the future fast enough to keep up with the way things are changing now and coming up to you. So uh, I was able to, although it took me 10 years, I wasn't working on this project all the time in 10 years. This is actually, it had its genesis in a collaborative project 10 years ago that wrote the first main chapter, not the prologue. And then the rest of them came out of essays and other things that I'd written in the intervening time. And I put them together, wrote a story to it and made characters to live out those those parts of it and that part took me about a year and a half to finish that out so i was able to to run real fast and try to keep up ahead <laughs> of, of the news well talk about creating the characters because i think they're really engaging and i think that's important to give us somebody like clovis who, who, who we yeah. really like and, and sympathize with so that you know to carry us through the narrative yeah well this is my first novel uh, I've written short stories, and, and uh, some of the chapters in here are short stories that have been published elsewhere. But this was my first novel where I had to have characters that were consistent. And, and so it's largely autobiographical, mm -hmm. autobiographical. Um, some of it is me, some of it is uh, other people in my life, um, and some of it is pretty blatantly other people in my life. Um, because that's where I have to start from. It's real difficult for a first-time writer of fiction to come up with glowing characters that carry through. Um, so I used myself and other people who I could observe how they acted. But then along in the process, I learned that that wasn't enough, that what I had to do was really invent those characters, and I had to write a whole backstory for the characters that most of which doesn't appear in the book. It's so that when the character is, uh, comes to a situation, the character responds to the situation based on that backstory, not on uh, what I want the character to do. And it's an interesting transition that happens because then the characters start acting on their own and they start having a life of their own and they start talking back to you and saying, no, that's not how I do that. And they start doing things on their own that surprise you all the time as you're writing. And so there's a shift that happens there when the characters become real and take over the story. That's so interesting. Now, uh, these backstories you have, are, are they, did you, are they like a little Bible kind of separate from this book that you have that uh, you would consult as you wrote it? Not or so much consult, because once I had written it, then it was in my head. Okay. So it was an understanding of the character that had a background um, that caused the responses that they had. So that once I had the, char the backstory written for a character, then I knew that character. Mm -hmm. And then, then all I had to do was write and let the writing take care of itself. And, and because of the knowledge of that character, then the character would do the things that it would naturally do. And uh, the problem is that they never stop doing it when you're not writing. <laughs> they do it at night, and they do it on the weekends when you're out doing something else, and they come back and they bug you about it all the time, and you have to sit down and write it down. And uh, it's, it can be kind of a, a schizophrenic process. Also, I think, you know, one of the, there are two characters in this book that are not necessarily traditional characters. One would be technology. Mm. And I'd like you to just talk about handling the technology and making it part of the characters' lives and the way they use it and the way, because I think you do a great job at uh, making, uh, observing that for humans, technology is a part of the natural environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, we, at this point, 20th century uh, Homo sapiens, uh, a big chunk of us, consider this kind of environment right now, stucco, walls, parking lot, that's where we live. Mm -hmm. We do not, we are not uh, hominids running across the grass anymore. As much as we might like to think that or might think that's better for us, you put us out in the grass and, you know, we run to the nearest uh, fast food joint. Well, the, that is a good point. Technology is everything in our life now. Uh, we're all mediated by, mediated by technology. Very few people now have an unmediated experience with the natural world. And that's one of the dualities in the story is that um, we really, our home really is wilderness and the natural world. We evolved in, in wilderness. We've evolved in the natural world. But we have built this layer of technology that, that more and more separates us from the natural world. And we look to technology to solve all our problems. And we can't solve the problems with technology that technology created. Um, the problems we're faced with now have to be solved with less technology and with simpler technology. Um, I think my next book is going to be called 
simplicity because that's the only answer. We have to, uh, the technology has put us into a position where we're no longer at home on this planet and uh, we have to, to deal with that. We have to come to grips with that. We have to admit that to ourselves, that the path we're on right now is not a viable path and it's gonna kill us off in a lot of other life if we don't do something about it soon. I, I, that's one of the things I, you know, the, the other character in opposition to technology is <clears throat> the natural world. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you have a protagonist and an antagonist in this story, the story has lots of grays in it. It's more about the gray areas than it is about black and white. But the mm -hmm. black and white, the, the protagonist and antagonist are the world before technology and the world after. And I, the, the technology that's kind of like a, a parasite in a sense on this world. So I'd like you to talk about trying to observe, I mean, trying to create a perspective of the natural world by people who are brought up in an unnatural mm -hmm. world. Yeah, place becomes a character mm -hmm. in, in a story this way, and, and that's what I tried real hard to, to make place another person in the story, another character in the story. And, and the, the, when I was doing my uh, work in archaeology and anthropology, the thing that I studied on my research area was the effects of the environment on the relationship and the effects of climate change on relationship between people and the environment. And because for it with indigenous people who have technology, by the way, technology is, is always there and when humans are there, it's just a simpler technology. Uh, but the um, technology at that point is not mediating the, the environment, the experience of the environment so much. The people are much more involved in it. So in this story, that was indeed two of the, the, the black and white areas was not so much the um, landscape or place before technology, but that, that occurs side by side. I mean, even now there's a natural environment here mm -hmm. where we're sitting right now. And there's birds in the trees right outside. And you can have a wilderness experience just walking from here to downtown uh, because there's all kinds of life there. You can go out in your backyard if you have a backyard and just get down on your hands and knees and look at a little patch of ground of one foot square and have a wilderness experience. It's really there. And it's an amazing diversity in that one little, little square. Uh, so here, the, uh, it's not so much in the past, but the natural environment that exists side by side with the technology and coming to grips with that. It's one of the things that, that Abby, I always wish that Abby had dealt with more was the technology end of it and where we're going with it and what happens afterwards. Because if we don't know where we're going, uh, we're probably not gonna get there because we can't find our route from here to there. And so I was always hoping that he, when he was writing, that he would envision the, the um, endpoint a little bit more. Not an endpoint, because there is no endpoint, but envision the target at least a little bit more. So we'd know, why are we doing all this environmentalism stuff? I mean, we know we're doing it because we have to stop destruction of the natural world. Uh, but there has to be a vision at the end of that somewhere of where we want to be after we've stopped them, then uh, this is where, how we want to build a world. And I didn't get to it in this story, which means, of course, that there has to be another story. Uh, <laughs> and that's what I'm working on now. Uh, but um, place in that is, a, is an important part of that whole um, living in place, uh, living with place is a different concept than living. It's, it's like um, um, living in the earth rather than on the earth. And even in here in Santa Cruz, uh, this is, it's an old thing, it's called bioregionalism. Uh, Peter Berg and Ray Dasman from the university here were the pioneers of bioregionalism. And the idea is living in place so that you know the parameters of the place where you live. You know where the weather comes from, you know where the fog comes in, you know when the sun shines, you know your, where your water comes from, you know where your food comes from. And that all affects us right here now. I mean, we're, we're living bioregionally here. We don't like to admit it because we have all these boxes around us that, that separate it from us. But that's what living in place is all about. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things I, I like, too, is the way you look at various purported environmental solutions. As you said, more technology is not the answer. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I, there are so many so-called green solutions that I've seen that you just go, what are they thinking? <laughs> I, I mean, uh, the, the idea of uh, 
ethanol being a biofuel is just totally insane, and I don't see how anybody could ever even begin to buy that. And yet that's just, you know, it, they, it's called biofuel. What, what are they thinking? <laughs> um, there's a thing that that is, it's oddly important in our society because, um, well, it's important in our society because it's the center of our society. It's called money. <laughs> yeah. And someone once said, follow the money. And that's the answer to all those questions about it because it's not sufficient to stop environmental destruction. Um, you have to make money at it. And, and that colors the whole thing, colors it green. And uh, so you can't do the thing. You have to do insane things like biofuels. And one reason why is because when you're dealing with money, when you're dealing with the consumer economy like we have now, I won't say the nasty C word, um, it all has to be short-term gain. You have, to, you have to make the investment, get your return right away so you can invest that money in something else and get more return. You don't look at the long term at it at all. And um, the natural world doesn't live like that. The natural world is long term and it's very complex. And, and um, it's, you know, the, the Iroquois had it right when they were talking about unto the seventh generation. That's, that's short term in terms of the, the natural world. So um, it's a different perspective. And as long as we're on the short term money perspective, we'll never find sane, rational solutions to our problems because those, that's the attitude that caused the problem in the first place. Uh, I guess, you know, I never thought of it till now, the whole idea of a, quote, a green economy and green this and green that. It's like uh, it's a smoke and mirrors. Oh, uh, yeah. we're, we, we're thinking leaves, but it's really dollars. Yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's always dollars. <laughs> dollars uh, right at the, what was it about the, the thing about the, the theory of the world that it was turtles? The oh, yeah. turtles piled on turtles, yeah. and, and it's turtles all the way down. Turtles well, for that, it's down. dollars. It's dollars all the way down. That's all there is to it. <laughs> that was Bertrand Russell. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the old lady in Bertrand Russell. What yes. a great yes. anecdote. Uh, that you brought up something I think that's important uh, to this novel is Indian culture, and, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of it there. And so I'd like you to just talk a little bit about doing the research and, you know, drawing on your own. Uh, experience mm -hmm. as an archaeologist and how that I think really informs this book and that's an interesting way to approach uh, the environment and mm -hmm. environmentalism is through archaeology because you're looking at, after all at people who didn't do work it didn't work out so well for them did it yeah <laughs> you're well, looking at ruins and <laughs> uh, in, in a lot of cases yeah and in a lot of, in some cases too it's working out quite well still mm -hmm. um, I before I went into anthropology, which I actually started in quite late, um, I had lived on, in the, on the Pine Ridge. I hadn't lived on the Pine Ridge Reservation, but I worked there at Pine Ridge. Uh, I, I was a photographer at the time, and I took pictures, class pictures of the kids there. And then later on, as an archaeologist, I worked on an archaeology site, which was just a few miles away from Pine Ridge, and that was in the 70s, during the time when we had the, the second um, confrontation at Pine Ridge. And we heard gunfire just over the ridge from where our archaeology site was, and I picked up people off the, the railroad tracks that had been beaten up by the people. So I had some pretty direct experience. And then in Alaska, I lived with uh, the native people of Alaska um, out on an island in the middle of the Bering Strait and in some of the villages. So I really got to know people and know the way they view the world, which is entirely differently than we do. We do. We see... For one thing, we see time as linear. We have a past and a present and a future. And so we're always talking about progress because linear time, as we go through time, we get better and better. Don't we? Because we're supposed to. No, no. We use, up, we use up more and more. Yeah. So we see time as linear, and we say time is progressive. Well, in, in the indigenous world, time is not linear. It's spiral. It's circular. And everything, all of life in a native village, and I'm talking about native village in the past, but actually still in the present in many places. Um, they live on the uh, subsistence round where, and, and the way it's described in one book is always getting ready. So in the summertime, you're out fishing. And while you're fishing, you're getting ready to collect things in the fall. And then in the fall, you're collecting things and you're getting ready to preparing for winter. And in the wintertime, then you spend all your time getting your tools all ready for spring because spring is the hardest time of the year. All your stored food has run out. Uh, things haven't started to grow yet. The animals are not available. So spring is a tough time. So you spend much of your winter getting ready for spring. And then in the spring, you're getting ready for summer. So it's circular. Now, it's not 
it's not circular like a circle, it's a spiral because there is change. There's very slow periodic change that occurs. And since you're so in tune with the world, you see that change all the time. And, uh, that, and so that's very different than the way we see things. And it's a very natural way to see things because that's the way animals live. I mean, animals are, are living for the moment throughout time. And they're, they're living within the natural cycles of resource availability, abundance, and, and uh, scarcity. And um, that's the way people live for hundreds of thousands of years until recently, until the last 5,000 years or so. And so one of the central questions of my life is what happened at that time in the past when we gave that up and started living in a style that led to what way we're living now, which is completely out of touch with all the natural cycles. And we live in this world, uh, there's, you've seen the bumper sticker, uh, human beings are not the only species, we just act like it. That's, that's the way we are. And, and we act as if the world is infinite, that we can consume and consume and consume, and there will always be plenty for us. Even though we hear about peak oil and other things, limitations, we don't take it seriously because look, here we are, we flip a switch, the lights come on, we go out in our car and we drive away, and everything's normal, and that's the way everything should be. And it's not. It's very, very abnormal, and it is suicidal. And we just haven't realized that at this point because we're living in this linear, progressive world that keeps getting better and better. So things will always get better, won't they? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't <laughs> Uh, if uh, what we hear on the election cycle is uh, <laughs> happening, no, it looks like. Well, no. there's no hope there. Talk a little bit about um, creating, integrating the characters you created with the technology and just creating a plot that keeps the pages turning, because that's one of the uh, aspects of this book. I mean, you know, hmm. from the very get-go, you kind of give us a mystery, mm -hmm. and then we spend the rest of the book turning the pages as fast as we can, trying to figure out, you know, what's going to happen, why and to mm -hmm. whom. Mm -hmm. And I think, how much of this did you know when you started again a year and a half mm -hmm. ago? How much of this did you know was going to happen and how much of it worked itself out in the prose? It all worked itself out as I wrote it. Um, some of the chapters were written full-blown, and I had to fit them in to the story. Mm -hmm. I, I had to create a story that wove them all together into a narrative. But um, I didn't know the ending of the book until, what? Oh, Gene's gone. Um, oh, till, uh, it was, what, a month or two before it was finally published, before it was finally out. I didn't know what the ending was. I had an ending, and I didn't like it. And uh, it didn't fit in with the rest of the story. And then finally, we just, I just figured it out one time, and uh, we did it. Um, if I, if when I write another novel, I'm going to plan it a little more ahead of time, I think. <laughs> um, I have a tendency to just sit down and write and write things, and they come out. And I like them so much that I don't want to change them. Uh, and that makes it difficult to fit them together. But this seemed to, to work out really well. I did purposely try very hard to move the story along and also to to change the pace as we went along too. Um, and I also another thing that was very, very hard for me was to try to keep from being preachy in the in the in the uh, dialogue because I, I'm used to writing essays and I'm used to writing magazine articles, that type of thing, where you're really preachy, where you're saying, listen, you guys got to stop doing this right now. You're going to ruin the world. And you have to do this, and we must do that, and we must do that. And I didn't want to have the characters saying that because that had turned everybody off. So I, I had to, to pull all that back in and put it into a dialogue. And then if you have too much dialogue, you know, if you're looking at the page, if you have too much dialogue, uh, you, you, there's a lot of white area in there. And if you have too much description, then it's all blocky. And so I tried to match that up so it varied. And so you'd have fast moving. And then also another thing that I learned from Michael Crichton is that when, you're, when the story's moving fast, you have short chapters. And so they go quickly, and you go from chapter to chapter very quick. And then when you're, when you're pacing, you're setting back, and you're kind of sort of setting up the next action, then the chapters get bigger, and uh, they're a little more involved. So, so I worked at that um, learning more from reading than anything else about but especially, I read all of Crichton's books because he was one of the best storytellers there ever was and, and uh, learned from him about pacing in the, in the story. Did you 
like use tools like a spreadsheet or something to map this out or di diagram mm -hmm. it like a graph or did did you just uh, was it all just a prose creation? I just struggled through the prose yeah yeah now I've learned I've tried different ways of doing that as I've, I've been thinking of new projects to do I've tried doing that with spreadsheets for the scenes and all that stuff mm -hmm. and it's a little too contrived mm -hmm. um, it's too structured I think and life is not structured and I'm not a very structured person as Gene well knows uh, um, and the story that I'm telling is not a really structured story. Uh, it's, it's not about control. It's about things sort of going on their end and getting ragged on the edges and, and uh, sometimes fitting together and sometimes not fitting together. So I have a tendency to, to write scenes that I really like, that are really cool scenes that are fun to write, and then trying to fit them together after the fact. Now, you do a lot of writing on your blogs. You have a lot of blogs. You write for magazines. Um, I like to do tell us a little bit about your writing day and trying to like uh, keep from you know only writing the blog, letting the you know yeah. find, finding the, the the balance as it were. Well, well right now I'm resting uh, from from this one. Uh, also, there's another thing that happens that has to do with um, self-publishing that we have to talk about mm -hmm. too. Is that once w when the book is finished. That's just the start. And so I've had a lot of, spend a lot of time not writing, trying to figure out how to promote the book. And one of the ways you do that as an as a independent or freelance writer is you write blogs. Mm -hmm. And so you get the word out and you, you always put your little contact information, the URL, the link down there to your, to your beautiful website that has links for all the books. So everybody will go there and buy them, maybe someday. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, ha I have been writing a lot of blogs and I have been doing a lot of commenting on other people's blogs to try to get the word out to get people going to my website. Um, the problem is that, that then your, your creativity, your writing creativity and your writing energy goes into that and not into writing another big story. So there's that balance that you have to get. And it's difficult because once you get into the habit of kind of cruising blogs and then writing short pieces in the morning, uh, eventually it's supper time and, and your whole day is gone and you've spent the whole day sitting at the computer uh, but what I what I really like to do, if I could structure my day the way I wanted to, would be to sort of free writing, creative writing in the morning, and then in the afternoon research and um, other less uh, less creative things is the way my day works the best. So I sp I get up in the morning and I s I spend I go for a walk, spend then I spend the morning. Um, doing the blog's research is what I'm working at now. Now, once I identify a project and start on a new project, say another book if I do that, uh, then I would do the writing on the book in the morning mm -hmm. and then do the blogs, the research, and the marketing stuff in the afternoon. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the, the self-publishing mm -hmm. process. This was a, a Lulu, right? That's how it started out. Lulu's good. I they're think good. They're, the they're very good. They're best of the ones I really I've like seen. Them. And when I started out, the, uh, when I s really decided I was going to write a book, and I was going to take all this stuff that I'd collected over the years and put it into a book form, and decided I didn't want to go the route of um, the traditional publishing route, partly because of the message of the book is sort of anarchic and unstructured as well. So I, I really was, I was really enamored with the idea of self-publishing. Lulu was about all there was mm. at that time when I first started looking at that. There was, an, there was um, a couple others that were available, but they, you had to put money up front, and mm. Lulu was free. Mm -hmm. You could just do the book and put it up there and promote it, and people would come buy it. They would just, you know, just hundreds of hits every day, and you'd sell lots of books. Um, and Lula has a real nice interface for publishing. Mm -hmm. Uh, for for putting your book together, that's important. Yes. I mean, well, it's that, very important, as you said. I mean, mm -hmm. once you've got the the prose written down and, mm -hmm. and such, uh, the everything else is like a, a friggin' anchor. Oh, I know, and um, you can see why people for a long time got paid a lot of money to do publishing because it it's a very very detailed project, and I did a high learning curve. I uh, I wrote I took. Uh, a bunch of my essays that I'd written over the years uh, from uh, Wyoming, Alaska, and I put them together in a book and, and did this on Lulu just as a test, as an experiment to learn how to do it and uh, to learn how to do all the formatting and how to you design the cover and the back page and you have to have everything formatted just right so it comes out perfect when, you, when your book is done. 
And so this was my, this was my um, self-publishing 101 project. And once I had that out, then I felt confident to go ahead and tackle the novel and put it out that way. So um, the, the, the best thing about self-publishing is that you're in total control of the process from start to finish. You write the book, you write it to your own satisfaction, you design the book, you uh, design the cover and the whole bit, you do the marketing, you get all the money someday. <laughs> the worst thing about self-publishing is that you're in control of the entire process and you have to do all that and you have to write the whole thing and you have to format it and you have to do the cover and you have to do all the blurb and you have to do the marketing which is what I really hate. Um, so the <laughs> there's pluses and minuses of the whole process. Um, and I'm still, con I'm still, this is still an experiment. And now that I've done this, I may take this book to, an, to try and find an agent and see if I can do the traditional publishing as well. Um, just because I have it the way I want it. But the problem is, see, when you put all your heart and soul into the book, and then you go to a publisher and they say, well, we want to change this and change this. And we're going to move this chapter over here. And we, oh, this character is no good. Got him out. Please rewrite this, rewrite this, rewrite that. That's no good. Too much, you know, the whole thing. There goes all your creativity out the window. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Then you're depending on somebody else's creativity. And that doesn't sit well with me. And I'm, I'm sort of a suspicious kind of guy anyway. And I look at the publishing industry. The publishing industry sets standards for book quality and has for since, they, the, since the Gutenbergs. And they do this not for aesthetic reasons uh, and not to satisfy the uh, sensibilities of the author, but to sell books. And, and they take your creative product and they make it into a saleable item. What uh, they think is a saleable exactly, item, which exactly. is not necessarily what people will actually want to pay money for to buy. Well, um, but they do. They have the model that they yeah. know that they, things will buy. And so they put it out on the shelves, and it's there for two months, and then it goes in the remainders, and then it's done. And the problem is when you go to a publisher, you give over your rights to your book to the publisher. And uh, if they decide to put it on the remainders and, and it's gone, it's gone. And unless you have negotiated for rights to the book after that process, which doesn't happen very often, uh, your book is gone, and you can't do anything more. Whereas if you self-publish it, even though you may not sell 100,000 copies uh, in the first year that it's out, you may sell 2,000 copies a year for the next 25 years. And so it's a different approach. And um, right now I'm real happy with this, the, the product that's come out of this, and I would hate to see it change to become a marketable item. So if I take it on the road, or if I take it, pedal it, it's going to have to be a real unique publisher. And I have a couple in mind that might do it, that, uh, that would take this and not change it so much that it's not satisfying to me. Have you talked to PM Publishing out in San Francisco? No. You should. They're, yeah. they're, they're of a mindset like you, and oh, I think cool. they, might, they might dig this. Yeah, I'll do we'll that. We'll talk afterwards. Yeah, 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 good. They, okay. They'll like you. All right. <laughs> I like people who like me. <laughs> uh, talk a little bit about um, as you you know one of the things uh, that you that when I read this book I thought that you did a good job was the editing did you have somebody read this and edit it for you I had th several people edit my my chief editor is my wife Jean mm -hmm. she is a dynamite editor oh that's great and that if she ever wanted another job she could do it I mean, she's she has a perfect eye uh, for for copywriting, and also content editing, which is, they're two, two separate things. Copywriting is just making sure all, everything is spelled correctly and all the punctuation is right. And then the uh, uh, copy, or the uh, content editing is just making sure that you're saying what you want to say. And uh, those are the two different disciplines. Um, and then I had other people read it and made suggestions too. Um, well, so. I have to say that I, I've seen a number of self-published books, and this is the best edited and the oh, cleanest really? that I've actually seen. I well, mean, I, I thank so you for everyone who had a hand in it. Yeah, you're, you're to be congratulated. You and your team are to be congratulated <laughs> because that's a really difficult nut to crack, and that is the first fallibility of every self-publishing effort. Yeah. Is you look at it, and some you'll get in there and go, "Wow, that's just you know, yeah. uh, oh my." Yeah, I <laughs> and I went through it. You. The one thing that I found is you cannot edit on the screen, on the computer. Oh, no. You have no. to print it out and look at it in hard copy. It's just impossible to edit on the screen. 
because you, your eye takes in that screen as a whole and you read through it and you know it so well that you just read through it and you don't see all those things. But for some reason when it's printed out on the page, the, it, it, the things pop out. And, but I went through there three or four times and t thought it was really good. And then Jean went through there and she just marked all over it. And she found things that I hadn't seen because I was so familiar with it. Yeah. Well, that's one of the, the, the pitfalls. Now, one of the things too, talk a little bit about you had this finished, you have this, ni it's nicely printed, it looks great. Um, what kind of uh, promotion have you pursued and what do you think you're likely to go next? I've concentrated on online promotion. Mm -hmm. I have a, I built myself a website. One of the things that I've taught myself to do over the years is how to do websites, to author websites. What do you do? What do you use? Uh, just HTML language. I just write it. So you just go straight. You don't use a, uh, an application like Dreamweaver? No. No. Huh. Oh, really? I you used to. I I used to do one that was called uh, Hot. Hot metal. Hot metal. That was it. Yeah. I started with that. And I, it was too limiting. Mm -hmm. And so now, and I just learned how to, to do it. Um, wow, I'm impressed. I, that's I, manly. <laughs> <laughs> to get the source code, that's very manly. Well, it's, but <laughs> what, you, what you do, like, <laughs> what you do is you learn the things that you use all the time. Yeah. And yeah. then when you come on something that you want to do, you say, oh, God, I can't do that. And then you figure out how to do it. Mm -hmm. And you go searching through and you, and there's, there's all kinds of help stuff on the internet oh, yeah. about how to do certain things. So if you want a, a, a letter, a word to be in purple in a different kind of font, you just go figure out how to do that and you put in the code and, and that's it. Yeah. Now I do have, uh, there are shortcuts, which are not things like hot metal, which are authoring languages, mm -hmm. but there are shortcuts that allow you to click for certain things, like mm -hmm. to center a page or to do a paragraph or things like that, that give you some shortcuts mm -hmm. so you don't have to write each thing out all the time. Right. That helps a lot. You can do cut and paste if you need. Yeah. You just go look at it. If you know, want it to look like somebody else's page, you just go yeah. view their source and steal it. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. That's uh, the best way. That's yeah. The, yeah, yeah, that, that's yeah. In fact, mentor. You be men let yourself be mentored by those you <laughs> and wish to see. Yeah. <laughs> and in terms of, of web pages, there uh, you can get templates. And there are lots of sources that have free templates and you can, uh, that are easy. And they're set up so that they're easy to modify if you want to do that, too. So, uh, so I, I have a website that has... Uh, it has all my books. It has the journalism that I've done. It has uh, short stories and uh, photographs. So it, that's that's the gateway to it. And then what I do is I, ju I just write for lots of things. I, I comment on other people's blogs. I, I comment on... I've even tried uh, Twitter, which hasn't been a real success. But anything you can do to get the awareness out associated with the URL that comes back to the website, then that's how you market online. And you just have to get it out there and start getting people coming back at it. Now, uh, do we have any questions from the audience? Oh, goody. Yes? <coughs> if you say a word about a different kind of technology, technology now mostly means computer-related electronic stuff. In Abby's time, it was a bulldozer. Uh -huh. There are industrial technologies now which enable massive destruction. So for example, love of taking off the whole top of a mountain in Virginia to get coal. Mm -hmm. That technology was not available 25 years ago. Tar sands in Canada is another technology. And another one is fracking, mm -hmm. very contemporary. Mm -hmm. So just say a word about other kinds of technology, big scale technology. Yeah, the, the monkey wrenching is the, the reaction to that kind of technology. And, and what you do is you find the weak point in the system and you uh, attack that. And um, with like fracking and, uh, I mean, that's got a lot of weak points in it and a lot of places to apply it. But the problem is, is that nowadays in, in Ed Abbey's time, that was a very successful strategy was monkey wrenching because it not only stopped the activity short, but it gave you time to publicize what was going on. And so it gave the lawyers time to do their thing, and it gave the, the journalists time to do their thing. That's all, that doesn't happen anymore now. Um, the fracking, or the, the pipeline from Canada <coughs> from the tar sands has been one of the most successful ones um, because that was internationally publicized. And yet, they're still going to build a pipeline, <laughs> and they're still doing the tar sands because... The people in control have learned how to control that information. They've learned how to spin it. And so 
even though we can do the protests that may stop a pipeline for a day or two, or may stop a, a, um, a plant that's polluting for a day or two, once the publicity has gone by and the, the spin doctors have spun the story, then they, they're back again. The, the modern technology is so overwhelming that we, we can't really effectively stop it. Exactly, and that's, yeah, and that's the new story that we need is ways to, to, uh, to do this. And, you know, frankly, I've been dealing with this now for 50 years, and the only th the, my only conclusion is to follow Gandhi and just turn our backs on the whole thing and uh, just with non-cooperation and just say, we just aren't going to do this anymore. We're going to learn how to live right here, and they can do their thing out there all they want. From We're not going to vote for them. We're not going to give them our money. We're not going to give them our tax dollars. We're going to develop our own economies right here. We're going to keep our money right here where we can keep an eye on it so we know what people are doing with it. We're going to invest in our local banks. We're going to grow our own food right here. Um, uh, the local food uh, movement is getting quite large now, and, and here we are in the most perfect place in the world to supply our own food. We have the best croplands in the world if we can just get the strawberries off of it and uh, poisons. So I think localization, turning away from that, it rather, because the problem is that uh, in the 60s and 70s, they learned how to do essentially homeland security. And so that the more we confront them, the stronger they are. They use it as an excuse to build more and more of a police state, to clamp down more and more, to be more and more oppressive. And we're working against ourselves. <laughs> so we have to find a way. And the only way that I've ever come up with is just, just to turn around and walk the other way. Um, the story that we love to tell is that when you're standing on the precipice with your toes hanging out over the edge, and right down there it's a thousand, free, a thousand foot free drop to the rocks below, what do you do? So there's two things you can do. You can either take a step backward or you can turn around and take a step forward. And I think that's, wh that's where I'm coming from, is that two things. One is to turn our back on, to not cooperate with the, with the structure that's destroying the world. And the other is um, taking that step forward to simplicity, to simplifying our lives, to saying no to the consumer society, to working in community just as we are here tonight, to uh, mutual aid for all of our neighbors and friends and family, and go back to those roots of where we started a long time ago before we got off on this terrible thing that we're on right now. Um. I think you're talking about what's interesting. It struck me that what you're talking about is controlling the most essential human technology story. Uh, once we control mm -hmm. the story, mm -hmm. then, the, then the rest of it is gravy. We, yeah. Once we control the story, we control the vision, we control the decisions, and everything else is secondary to that story. Yeah. It used to be that um, in the villages, in Native American communities, people would sit around the fire on cold winter nights and tell stories. And um, this is one thing I learned in the villages, is that oral history is like a snowball. It rolls through time. And as it rolls, it picks up things. So here's the story. It, and, and there's a wonderful example of a stupid archaeologist. No, he wasn't a stupid. He was an archaeologist. And he, wanted, he was an anthropologist, and he wanted to learn how the Athabascan people processed caribou. And so he went out hunting with them. And he was a, he'd been a hunter on the lower 48, and so he came out there with his fancy gun, and he went out hunting with them. And they just laughed at him. They just thought it was so funny because he did everything wrong. He was so stupid that poor guy, like he didn't know anything. And then over the years, he came back to the same village over years and years. And, of course, he got a little smarter. But he also noticed that they were telling stories. At first, in the first few years, they were telling stories on him. And they would tell the stories and laugh. And, and then after a while, it became stories about this white guy who did all these stupid things. <laughs> and then after a while, it became Raven who did all these things. And then after a while, there was no connection to the original story. It had gotten rolled up in the snowball of oral history and had become part of the lesson of how they taught people to be a human being. And so they would use the example of Raven, who did these stupid things, and learn from it, and they'd be telling that around the fire. Okay, so that's traditionally the story that was told. There were lessons from life about how to hu be a human being in the place where they lived. And you know what changed all that, of course? Television. Because television now tells us how to be a human being 
in Los Angeles or New York City or Paris or other places that, that is non-functional here. Vancouver. <laughs> and so, and in the villages now, they're watching television. Instead of sitting around the fire, the, the TV has become the fire. And the stories that are being told are about how to be a human being somewhere else. And so the people are not being prepared to live in the place where they live. And that's why we need new stories now to tell us how to be human beings now. I saw way at the back. It's what Stanislaw Lem called the pericolypse, the apocalypse that's already come to pass, only nobody noticed in the general haste. <laughs> <laughs> and Ian Forrester even wrote about that and back in the 1930s, wrote a science fiction story called The Machine Stops. And mm. uh, I think we're, we're, you know, within sight, you know, telescope distance mm. of that now. Now, I saw an, any more questions. I saw another question right there. What you or, or I myself, um, you know, Gandhi said, be the change that you wish to see in the world. We can't change the world. Um, we can't change overpopulation. We can't change technology. But we can change ourselves. And we can change our relationship to technology. We can change uh, our relationship to the place where we live. Um, and when you do that, you create a satisfying life for yourself. And you also serve as an example to others. And um, we've seen that uh, a lot. We, we walk everywhere we go. We hardly ever drive, even though we drove tonight. Um, and people see us walking all the time, and they always say, oh, yeah, I saw you walking. You walk everywhere, don't you? And, I say, and then that's an opportunity for us to say, yeah, it's really great to walk around Santa Cruz. You can walk everywhere in no time at all or ride a bicycle. And so while you're, creating, while you're changing your own life, then you're serving an example uh, for and giving other people the opportunity to change their lives as well. Mm -hmm. And it's 
Well, Soylent Green is people, so uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way that. It's good for you, though. You spoke of the cyclic nature of the indigenous people, mm -hmm. and, and then you said, and of course, then change would come to that, too. Right. Are you speaking of, of, of natural phenomenon or social phenomenon that, that made those changes? Well, both. both, actually, yeah. yeah. Because, um, who was it? Somebody said that, that uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. Um, <laughs> The, the spiral in, is, the, is the picture that I always use because it's never quite the same each subsistence year. That's why always getting ready is so important because some year the caribou might not come or come too late or it may not rain or whatever it happens. And so it changes a bit. And as it changes, people have to accommodate to those changes. So there's both physical change that happens in the world and then our reaction to it. Um, one thing that the people of the northwestern United States uh, on up into the Arctic um, have, um, anthropologists de describe it as syncretism, where that when they encounter another group of people, um, they take from them those things that work and they reject the rest. And so when, um, here's uh, the perfect example is during the um, uh, influenza epidemic of the early 1900s, thousands of people died in Alaska. It was just uh, horrible. Whole families died and whole villages died. And uh, missionaries went to Alaska to, uh, to help them. They wanted, because here were people in terrible need and, and there would be children whose whole families had died out and there were people who were sick. And so, and this did one thing. It the, the shamans, who were the healers of that society, were not able to deal with this horrible epidemic. And, but here were these missionaries who were. And, they, and not only that, but the missionaries had food and shelter and clothing for everybody for, for because of the show, social breakdown. And um, then the people were drawn to the mission schools, or, or the, um, the towns where they were, and they began to take some of that culture to them, the things that worked. And one of the things was the religion, and because the, the missionaries were religious, and so they taught the religion too. And, but the native people did not discard their own spiritual beliefs. They just added on those. It was like the guy I knew on Pine Ridge one time, an old man. He would go to a different church each Sunday, a different denomination in the towns around the, the mission, or around the, the reservation. And I asked him one time, I said, why, why do you go to all these different churches? You know, why don't you just settle down in one? He says, well, you never know. One of them might be right. <laughs> and that's the thing. You, yeah, that's what is called resilience, where you take on the things that work for you, and, but you don't discard the things that you already have that already work. So you don't throw your whole culture out. You just add those pieces on. And it's like technology. You add the technology on that works. And that's what we're faced with now. We're faced with a culture that doesn't work. And we're faced with being overwhelmed by technology. We can throw 90% of our technology away because it's not helpful now. But there may be things that we want to pick up. We may want to reach into the past and pull things forward. We want, may want to adapt new technology, build our communities that are resilient so that as whatever change comes to us, whether it's political or social or physical, we have that capability, the resilience to kind of work through that. And we have a bigger toolkit to work with. Uh, I think our toolkits, one more question. Yeah. Just one more. Yeah. You used the term climate change earlier. We, we heard a talk recently where, where the, the, the environmentalist who was doing the speech said that this, is a, this was a term that was created to combat the term global warming. Uh, and it was created by, I don't know, the government or the powers that be uh, to, to change the, 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 the way we did. And I, I just wondered if you, if you have any well, if we open this box, we'll be here all night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about this for a long time. But I'll tell you, in, in the book, uh, the, uh, the attitude of the characters in the book paralleled my learning process as I wrote the book. And it starts out in, with one way and it ends up with another. And uh, the one of the Native American characters say, well, the cl climate always changes. 
It's always, and it's never the same. It says, um, many, some people want the earth to stay the same, but only dead things stay the same. The living things always change. And that's sort of my attitude about it, yeah. Well, I think that we have had a great night of cultural change and have <laughs> learned a few things. And also just uh, this is a way that uh, we establish community and update our own stories. Now we can all go home and tell the story of what we did tonight. There you go. All right. Thank you for joining us. Michael Lewis. Here's the book. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.